Wonderful. Good afternoon and welcome once again. And please join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers at this time. My name is Danny Asaf and have the pleasure of being the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto for this upcoming season. And thank you again for joining us today. The Canadian Club is proud of its rich tradition of providing a forum for leaders in all spheres of society to share their ideas with all of us. Led by a volunteer board of directors, we are dedicated to providing an open and welcoming platform for insightful and diverse perspectives on issues that impact our daily lives. Through programs and activities, including our youth and young leaders programs, diversity city partnerships, media and social opportunities, we offer you access to dynamic political, business, and public figures from around the world. Before, my, before I formally introduce our speakers and our panel, I would like to take the opportunity to tell you a little bit about, about our upcoming events. On October 27th, David Agnew, Chair of Colleges Ontario, will address the need for a new direction in higher education and the role of colleges in the modern economy to Canada's long-term success. On November 10th, we're pleased to announce that Steve Carlisle, President and General Manager of, and Managing Director of General Motors Canada, will map out the future and his perspectives on the auto industry. And on November 13th, Twitter's Kirsten Stewart will be joined on stage for an inspiring and candid conversation with Catalyst Canada's Alex Johnston on success and the future of leadership. You can order your tickets and review the club's list, full list of upcoming events at canadianclub.org. You can also join the conversation via Twitter, and please follow us at CDNCLUBTO or simply using that hashtag. For today, our panel, I remind you that we have the pleasure of putting some questions forward to our panel. You have these Q&A cards on your table. Feel free to fill them out, and Canadian Club staff will circulate throughout the room to collect them. In addition, I would like to express a special thanks today to our sponsor, McKesson, represented by my friend Ravi Deshpande here today. Thank you, McKesson. Thank you, Ravi, for your generous support for our great program this afternoon. I would also like to take the opportunity to welcome a group of youth and young leaders from the University of Toronto School of Public Policy and Governance, whom are here sponsored by Bell Canada. Thank you again for joining us today. And on to our main event. The finish line for the 42nd Canadian federal election is in sight. With just six days, six days to go, the leaders are jockeying for position and trying to convince us that they are worthy to be, be our next Prime Minister and hold that office for the upcoming term. Back in June, when our political insiders joined us, at that time, who would have imagined we'd be witnessing the longest campaign, the longest election in our nation's modern history? In addition, who would have known that we'd be faced with such contrasting choices? There was a time in the past where perhaps the parties and the platforms seemed more similar or had more items in common. Today, as Canadians, we have the benefit 
to choose between clear contrasting visions for the future of our country, and that is why today's event is, in particu is particularly special because we have great, insightful guests who will help guide us in these final days, this 11th week of this marathon campaign. And on that note, it's a pleasure to tell you that returning to our podium are the following, our following panelists. And please, uh, take your seats on the, on the podium as I introduce you. Kathleen Monk, she is a highly regarded political and public affairs commentator and Ottawa-based consultant. Ms. Monk is the founding executive director of the Broadbent, Inst Broadbent Institute, a public policy and training organization. She was the director of strategic communications for new, the New Democratic Party leader, uh, the late Jack Layton, during the 2011 federal election campaign. David Hurley is the principal partner of the Gandalf Group, a prominent polling and research firm. He's a regular CBC commentator and was a top advisor to former Prime Minister Paul Martin, and he was also the leader of the Liberal Party campaign, also the Liberal Party campaign co-chair for 2004 and 2006. Next is Jamie Watt. Mr. Watt is the executive chairman of Navigator Limited. He's a trusted advisor to business leaders as well as Canadian political leaders at all three levels of government. Mr. Watt is also a past president of our club as well as the Albany Club, and he's a regular public affairs commentator and contributes often to the CBC. And of course, moderating today's conversation is Mr. Rudyard Griffiths. He's the organizer and moderator of the Monk Debates and recently hosted its first ever federal election debate on Canada's foreign policy. He's also the president of the ARIA Charitable Foundation and a featured contributor to the CBC program, The Exchange. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to turn our Canadian Club podium over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, guys, um, Great to have you here. This is a, a fabulous group, and let's face it, a fascinating election. We're in the final innings. It's not jinx what's going to happen uh, tomorrow, but we are in the final innings of a historic campaign, a campaign that many of us, frankly, uh, didn't expect and haven't seen in our lifetime in terms of a real horse race. We all know, though, that uh, you know punditry right now is a dime a dozen. You can find it anywhere and everywhere. So I'm going to go in a, a little bit of a different direction with this panel. I think what's unique here and what the Canadian Club has done that's special is that we have three people who are really strategists, who've kind of gone deep into campaigns, who have a lifetime of experience uh, in this area. So I want to have more of a strategic conversation, and I want to get you guys to start uh, talking, uh, each of you separately and individually, about where these respective parties stand right now today and what they're thinking about in terms of the days to come. What do they have to do to have the best result, the optimal result, uh, come Monday? And Kathleen, let me uh, have you kick off and give us your analysis of the NDP's position at this moment. Where are they at? Right. So um, I spoke to some of you, I think at least, uh, in June of this year. and. Um, 
we were in a different hotel then, I think. <laughs> a different hotel, same topic of this very long, long campaign. We're now at uh, day 72 of this campaign, uh, six days left. Um, and there's rumors that actually the election will be extended if the Jays, in fact, likely win the game tomorrow night. And then we go into another series. Um, I know there's lots of people that will root for that. Not many of them live in Ottawa. Um, but uh, so uh, where's the NDP at right now? Uh, they are still uh, feeling pretty positive. So I got off the phone this morning with some friends before I jumped onto the plane to come to Toronto and feeling pretty good about pickups in southwest Ontario, um, feeling pretty good about holding uh, seats in Quebec, but clearly they're at, they have to make a decision. They have to make a decision in the next few days about um, where they're going to put resources around our incumbents and uh, decisions around strategies of how they can either blunt the, the liberal momentum and then what the scenarios are uh, post-October 19th. So uh, some of my colleagues probably in the war room will be writing about five different versions of election night speeches right now, figuring out what the messaging is. Uh, others will be um, dispersing uh, all the staff to the regions, uh, both incumbents and still target seats. Uh, I think that what they're trying to do is figure out a way to... Um, uh, blunt and criticize and draw some attention to parts of the liberal platform that haven't been uh, fully uh, investigated over the last, amazingly, over the last 72 days. Um, so that's kind of where the folks are. Uh, happy to elaborate more, but that's where I think I think that they've had trouble punching through on the media cycle. I think, you know, I would say... Um, by not taking hits early on on Mr. Trudeau or drawing attention to some of the weaknesses in his platform or uh, character were probably what people will turn to as one of the fatal flaws. Um, letting some of the attacks that Mr. Trudeau um, uh, launched in August and early September go unanswered in terms of raising, fueling the uh, the sovereigntist uh, question, um, questions around the attacks around uh, Mulcair's daycare plan, um, and just ha- facing the throng of premier after Premier uh, coming out and not really um, addressing some of those attacks um, straight on might be, uh, might be, you know, seen when we read the tea leaves on the 21st as a, a fatal mistake. Great, David. Let's go to you and uh, get a perspective here on the Liberal campaign. What are the big strategic decisions that they're making right now to play through the coming days? Well, the Liberal campaign's in a, a happier position. Um, when we used to have these discussions through the months leading up to the campaign and in the beginning part of the campaign, we would always say, well, any of the three parties can win, finish first. That's, that's really no longer the case. It's really no longer true. I think that the, uh, the outcome, the potential outcomes of the election range from um, a, a conservative plurality of seats if the liberal momentum is significantly blunted and rolled back over the course of this week all the way to a liberal majority if the uh, momentum of this week carries forward and uh, and carries through election day. So I think that's the general range. So if you're the liberal party, you're saying, how do we close that deal? Um, and uh, I think it's dependent upon um, pulling more conservative votes away from Harper in the 905 region primarily. Um, and uh, there's a lot of seats there, a lot of seats that are going to be very close there. Uh, and um, the Conservative vote has proven resilient uh, in that region of the country and is hanging in. And the other necessity for for the Liberals to close out with a majority would be for a further NDP collapse in Quebec and in British Columbia, which 
may or may not happen. We'll have to see over the course of the week. Uh, so really, what's the, the strategy is to um, create a sense of optimism and hope that actually change can happen. I think a lot of people have... Uh, you know, wearied over the course of 10 years about whether Harper is actually beatable or whether he's some vampire that just continues to uh, <laughs> hang around no matter what you do. Uh, and I think that part of the campaign, the liberal campaign, is to create a sense of hope and optimism that he can be beaten. Um, and the tricky part of it would be to be appealing, on the one hand, to NDP liberal switchers who absolutely hate Harper and will be motivated by what is best able to defeat him, and those conservative liberal switchers who are much more modulated in their impression of Harper, almost certainly voted for him in 2011, um, and don't hate him, may think his time has come and gone, um, but don't hate him. And so you've got to find a way to have a message that works to both of those audiences. Good. So that's a, a range to straddle. So, Jamie, come in for us. Uh, what's the Prime Minister thinking right now? Is he feeling good about where he's at? Is he... Is he worried? What's the big strategy for them in the coming week? Right. Well, he can't possibly be feeling good about where he's at. Um, you know, I think one of the most unattractive qualities of people is to be a Monday morning quarterback and second-guess uh, decisions that people made in good faith at the time. But uh, I think uh, we're in a situation where this very long election campaign has been a very uh, unfortunate strategic choice for the Conservatives. I think they had a much better opportunity to continue to paint Mr. Trudeau was just not ready over a short campaign period. What they've done is they've given him a long runway to show that he just might be ready. And I think that's, um, I think that's a problem. Uh, Harper, I mean, he has never been in, in uh, the last significant period of time able to go above his base. He's essentially stayed there. When people said this was a three-way race, I never saw it that way. I saw it was around 30 and change for Harper and all the rest for no Harper. They just hadn't figured out how they were going to accomplish that. So I think it was a mischaracterization to say that this was close because Harper has never shown the ability to grow above where he is, and that's what's happening now. His message is that this is a time for, it's a risky time for change. Uh, people are really beginning to second guess. We would need some massive October surprise for that to change the dynamics that I think have set in. So whilst it's possible that he will finish with a plurality, I think that's unlikely. Great. Kathleen, let's have uh, you just weigh in on what you've heard from both these guys. What are they getting right, but also what, what do you think they're getting wrong in their analysis? Um, so be I careful, because we have to be together tonight. So, you know. What's that? I said, you better be careful about what we're doing wrong, because we've got to be together tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, Jamie's right on um, on the, maybe it was inaccurate to call it a three-way race. That, um, that, but that, that 30%, I mean, I've spoken perhaps to this crowd before, but it, with this line, that it's almost like Harper's voters are formed in acid, not that dissimilar to Rob Ford's, that they're just not moving, that they're immovable. And it seems like around tw at the 28% mark, those people are always going to vote for Harper. So it was always a question of where that other 70% was going to fall. Um, David uh, highlights a couple things that are of note. Um, to create a federal government, you need to have seats in all parts of the country. And the Liberals have been very good in locking down um, uh, certainly the Atlantic provinces and um, have shown great success, particularly in this campaign, in locking down Ontario. So the 905, uh, four parts of the 416, some of the urban, um, urban 
uh, Toronto seats, which many of you may reside in, um, are still um, hopefully, uh, in, in my case, hopefully going to stay incumbent uh, New Democrat. And there are others that are fighting, that are total fights. But the question is, can Trudeau actually uh, convert uh, what seems like a wave of momentum into seats. What we do know um, is that their electoral district associations in the province of Quebec have been decimated over a series of years, a series of elections, and they literally, in many cases, don't even exist. Now, speaking as a New Democrat, we also didn't have electoral district associations in 2011, but we were able to convert that into seats. I would posit to you, though, there's a very different scenario happening here where people, uh, particularly Francophone Quebecers, are not as enamored uh, with Trudeau or with the Trudeau legacy, um, and we're much more open to the concept of embracing a bon Jacques, right? Uh, Jacques Clayton, as they used to call him. And so uh, I, I wonder how, when I mean, you see these seat projectors, and if, like, for instance, um, this morning there was no nanos. Did you all kind of feel a little withdrawal? Did y'all feel withdrawal? The crack cocaine of polling? There was no uh, 6 a.m. refresh, refresh. Oh, it was a holiday. Um, uh, the internals still kept coming, but not not nanos. And I think that what what what's interesting is that some of these seat projectors show the Liberals um, uh, picking up 20 seats in in. Uh, in Quebec, and I, I see some liberal organizers in the room, some uh, uh, hardcore partisans. You know, raise your hand if you can name me more than 12. You just can't. So that is going to be a challenge, I think, going forward. Great, guys. Jump in. Um, well, it's, uh, it's, it's true that we're going to have to win a lot of writings that we don't hold right now. Um, but I think that, uh, that Kathleen also knows that uh, the ground is no uh, the, the ground game uh, is uh, a minor part of the play compared to the overall narrative and drive and dynamic of the campaign, which is how they won 60 seats in in Quebec in the last election without anybody ever ever heard of any of the candidates before. Um, so um, we'll see how much on the ground organization matters. But I do think that if you're looking at the things that might cause you to slightly downgrade liberal prospects, general incumbency would be one, whether it's in Quebec with the NDP or in other parts of the country with the Conservatives. Incumbents matter. They matter uh, to the tune of 3 to 5 percent in their riding generally. Uh, and in a close race, that, in a close race that, can be, um, that can be decisive. I think that um, the part of the story that both Kathleen and Jamie alluded to that's really going to ultimately be, if there are recriminations um, in the NDP, this is what they're going to be about, I think, is that the dynamic was set up a long time ago, two, three years ago, that there was, not only was there 70% uh, of the country that wanted change, but 50% of the country, fully five out of those every seven of those change voters felt that incredibly strongly, that that was the driving motivation factor for them in this election was to change the government. Mm -hmm. And so for the the way I always looked at it is that the Liberals and the NDP were in a to use an American term, were in a primary to see who was going to get to face off against Harper. Harper was always going to be on the final ballot. Only one of the Liberals and the NDP were going to be on the final ballot. Uh, and I think that if you think back to uh, the situation in uh, the late spring right through the summer, uh, where the NDP were at and where the Liberal Party was at. Uh, and then you look at the decisions that the NDP made with their platform, 
to um, move to the center and expose that wide activist flank um, on the economy, and secondly, to hold off on any advertising through the early parts of the campaign. Um, they took their foot off of our throat, and we got up off the mat, and I think that's going to be the untold story of the campaign. Yeah. Not the untold. That will be the over-dissected story of the campaign. You know, I often used to hear the Liberal Party referred to as the third party, and I always thought that was a very uh, arrogant and misplaced, you know, way to characterize them. They were the party in third place, but they weren't the third party. And I think we're now seeing the results of the muscle memory that people have for that particular political brand. Yeah, I'm going to uh, work in some questions here. There's some good ones coming in, uh, and maybe have. Uh, uh, David and um, Kathleen weigh in on this. Um, why, our ma audience member asked, why aren't the Liberals more open to uh, flagging an intention, a willingness to work with the uh, NDP? What is the strategy behind that, uh, David? And is it is it working? Do you think it's effective? Well, because because we want people to think that they've got to vote Liberal to get a Liberal government, and they do have to vote Liberal to get a Liberal government. Um, and uh, so uh, it would be um, poor strategy to signal to people now that they could uh, uh, that they could vote NDP and still have uh, the change in the government that they want. First of all, it's risky. It, it, I mean, Harper's not out of this thing. We haven't even gotten into turnout issues yet, um, and how that might how that might play. Harper is we're it's a bit of triumphalism to this on the side of uh, the, uh, about. On, amongst all of us about the result, but I, I don't think that Harper is done yet. Um, so there's, there, is some, there is some risk to that. The second thing is, I mean, I think that both Mulcair and Trudeau have signaled, as clearly as I've ever seen signaled in an election campaign, that there is no Harper minority government. They have both said that they will not be supporting a Harper minority. Um, and um, so, you know, I mean, the one thing that is absolutely certain from, all, from the based on our assessment of what the result's going to be on Election Day and based on those two statements, the government is changing. One of the things that the rest of this election will determine is what's the shape of that new government. <coughs> Whether it, and it could be anything from a traditional minority situation all the way to a coalition-type arrangement, which I think, frankly, is going to be largely dependent upon what the relative seat counts are of the two parties and what the leverage is um, between the two parties. And who would be speculating on that now? Um. So I have a bit of a different view than David. Um, I actually worked very hard in 2008 with a woman in this room. Uh, I, I won't identify her. You can try to find, pick her out of the crowd. Um, to actually put a liberal in Langevin block. Uh, New Democrats at the time were very happy to work with liberals uh, to actually kick Harper out. And if we had done that, we would have had seven years where we wouldn't have had our environmental laws change, where we could have had increased investment in our health care, where possibly we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in right now with this infrastructure deficit that hangs over us. Um, so I do think that it is incumbent uh, upon uh, progressive political parties to figure out a way to work better with one another. As they do on city council, for instance, where you know you all have to work together. Um, there's not the same kind of partisan affiliation in the municipal level where you work together to get that stop sign, that road built, that park uh, installed. And I think that in many ways it does build up a lot of cynicism among voters when they see, for instance, um, especially at this point in the campaign, um, when, uh, when these parties are fighting with one another and they will end up electing conservatives, which is not something that either of us want to do. So when you look at Southwest Ontario, a riding like Welland, for instance, um, 
if uh, liberals go into that riding um, and they peel off a few New Democratic votes, it will result in a conservative being elected there. Um, and that's a problem. That's a problem for moving the agenda forward. Um, that doesn't help reverse uh, the lost Harper decade, in my opinion. Jamie, do you have a comment on that? I mean, um, obviously, you want to see as much of the vote splitting as you can. Uh, but is it going to happen this time, the way it did so powerfully uh, work against Michael Ignatius? Um, I think that Canadians are very good at doing collectively what they can't do individually, and they're good at figuring out what they they want and getting somehow our electoral system and its 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 magic works that through. So I think at the end of the day, if Canadians decide that they want change, they'll figure out a way to get that change. I think if uh, they decide that they want to stay the course, they'll figure out a way to stay the course. A lot of questions here about uh, what I call identity politics, from the refugee crisis to the niqab, um, uh, including from Pamela Ritchie, uh, newly at Bloomberg TV Canada. Pamela, great to see you on an exciting new TV network, news network launching uh, here in Canada. So, Jamie, back to you. And, I mean, let's get right to the, the, the cusp of this issue, which is the niqab. Has, how has this played out? Um, and is it is it doing what the Conservatives thought it would do in the in a, I presume in the way that they wanted it to? So this is obviously a very uh, complicated uh, <clears throat> a complicated issue. And let's put aside uh, what for one moment the uh, the issue itself and talk about the politics of it. I think what the Conservatives have decided is that it is a wedge issue. It's in a position they can take that their opponents can't take and therefore there's electoral advantage in it. Now, we'll put aside whether I personally think that just because you can, you should, uh, but I think there is some evidence that both their position on the niqab and their position on the refugee crisis has been electorally effective for them. David, uh, look, you're a polling expert. You've looked deeply into the numbers here. Is that what you're seeing too? The, the policy might not be agreeable, but the politics works. Well, Kathleen, Kathleen alluded to the magic that came together for the NDP in Quebec in the last election around Jack Layton. And um, the uh, coalition of voters that came together to elect 60 or so new Democrats out of, out of the province of Quebec. And um, very personally based appeal, I think, around Jack Layton fundamentally. Um, I think that uh, Thomas Mulcair was bequeathed a coalition in Quebec which was very unwieldy to say the least and really didn't have any business being together. Half federalists, half separatists, rural, urban, progressives, conservatives, all kinds of people mixed together in a coalition that was ripe to be uh, blown apart by something like identity politics. Um, and, um, uh, you know, in the absence of knowing what was going to happen, I was certainly an advocate of putting the NDP's position on the Sherbrooke Declaration and the Clarity Act uh, in the window to try to break apart that coalition. What I didn't know is that the Conservatives were going to come along with the kneecap and blow that coalition wide open, which is effectively what, um, what has happened. So it's been, 
I think, far more effective at hurting the NDP than it's been at advancing the Conservatives. And here's why I would say, Jamie says Harper's not been able to move his numbers past 30 percent, and so, you know, they, they eased into this, um, and I don't know whether this Leighton Crosby guy has anything to do with this or not, but they, they sort of eased into this. It started, it started with uh, the refugee um, issue and the national media and progressive institutions in the country were all up in arms about the government's reaction to the Syrian refugee issue, but in fact the polling indicated that Canadians had a lot more sympathy with Mr. Harper's position um, than did uh, the CBC National News. Um, and so that actually was an issue in which they were working people to their side on value things, but it can only help them so much because they were so unpopular. It can only take them so far. So then they pushed it a step further and they introduced the NECAB issue uh, to try to push that identity politics even one step further. And that really, really damaged the NDP, but frankly more to the Liberal Party's benefit than to the Conservative Party's benefit. And they had to keep pushing because it wasn't working for them. And I personally believe that at the point at which they announced the barbaric cultural practices tip line, that they had officially jumped the shark on this issue. And, and I think people started either to mock it or to be repulsed by it. And the one thing, you can have an ugly strategy as long as people don't see it as an ugly strategy. And once people came to realize what they were doing, once it became overt what they were doing, I don't think it worked anymore at all. And the other problem, of course, is that we have a we don't have a two-party system, so that uh, when you pull some of these stunts, they may damage one side, but you may not be the beneficiary of it. That's as David points out. That's the other problem. We're, we're not America. The only thing I'd add on that is um, is that it's not just a Quebec issue. Well, I guess I'd add a couple things. It does surprise me, in fact, that all of the parties, but even my own party, weren't more prepared for this question of the NICAB, because clearly the issue of identity politics had been brewing for several years now in Quebec. So to be prepared on that flank, um, they, they should have been better prepared, I think, in some ways. Um, that said, it, 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 because we are a three-party system, as Jamie says, you can't always calculate where the damage is going to fall. And that's the problem, is that Mulcair took all the hits in Quebec, um, and he even took hits, frankly, across the country because, as I say, it's not only a Quebec issue. This comes up on the doorstep in Saskatchewan. This comes up on the doorstep, you know, in Coquitlam. Um, it, they're hearing it there. Um, and so it actually hurt him, despite, you know, the Liberals and New Democrats hold, holding the same position on it um, and, and vocalizing it, maybe Mulcair more so than Mr. Trudeau. Um, Mulcair took the brunt of that, and, uh, and it will result in a dog's breakfast, I think, of, uh, of, of uh, elected, in, you know, people in Quebec, where it won't just be, um, we will see the uh, sovereignists pick up a few more seats. Great. A couple minutes left, and a great uh, wrap-up question here. And we're just going to go around the horn, starting with you first, Jamie. Name one key thing that the Conservative Party has done well in this campaign, and and one that you frankly think they've done poorly. Well, thanks, Richard. Um... <laughs> I, I think the Conservative Party has done well what, it, what Stephen Harper has long done well, which is speak effectively and clearly and consistently to his core supporters. Um, there's lots of evidence that uh, when, when it comes to turnout, not just to people who answer questions about how they may vote, but the people that actually put down the Pringles and put down the Diet Pepsi and get off the Lazy Boy and put their kids in the back seat of the car and actually get to the polling station when it's raining on election day, uh, he'll, do, um, he'll do well on that, as he has always done. 
I, I think what they've been challenged on is to grow beyond that, and that's certainly what the numbers would indicate to us today. On any given day, there aren't enough people either supporting the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party or the New Democrats to form a government. So your job is to A, keep your base happy, but B, to go out with a giant hoover and hoover up enough votes in order to get to where you need to be. And I think maybe he needed to trade in his hoover for a Dyson or something. <laughs> David, you're up next. Um, what the campaign has not done well... And not on the Conservatives. You have to go on the Liberals. Oh, really? Yeah, sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, this is no free lunch, <laughs> David. This is a uh, little self-criticism here. It's good for all of us. I was, I was all keyed up. Um, well, what, what, um, what do I personally wish, and I don't know whether this is just spite and anger on my part or whether it was sound strategy, uh, but what I personally wish uh, is that I think that Stephen Harper, who is one of the most unpopular prime ministers in Canadian history um, and who came into this with a wave of people demanding change, um, has got to be stunned that he has not been the subject of more aggressive negative advertising through the course of this campaign. Nobody has really taken the sins of the Harper era and hung them around his neck um, in a kind of negative camp attack advertising campaign that might have been expected with such an unpopular incumbent. And that may be part, partly because the Liberals and the NDP have been so busy fighting themselves throughout this period that to some extent their eye was taken off Harper from time to time. But what has the, what the liberal? A good enough ad. That ad, the ad with all the senators, that was a pretty good ad. That was the best attack. On that was the a, no, no, no question. Yeah. That was the best. Yeah, the, we the, hit the corruption hard. ad. Well, you had the uh, Dean and the leg irons in that yeah. one. Yeah. Nothing um, like the, the perp walk to, <laughs> to get the voters engaged. Yeah. Uh, first appearance of leg irons in a Canadian political right. ad, I think. Um, Something to be proud of. <laughs> what the liberal campaign has done right, I think, is a lot easier to answer and. Uh, there will be lots of time spent analyzing how effective the advertising was or wasn't or how effective the platform positionings were or weren't. But one thing has mattered more than anything else in this campaign, and certainly from the Liberal perspective, and that is the performance of Justin Trudeau on the hustings. When this campaign started, um, uh, he was flat on the mat. A year of carpet-bombing advertising uh, combined with a sympathetic uh, a media narrative that was sympathetic to that to the point of that advertising, combined with his own from time to time uh, comments that people found curious, um, had really led him to be uh, almost, almost written off at the start of this campaign. And in fact, you could argue that both the Conservative and NDP campaigns were founded on the assumption that he was, by the time the campaign started, unelectable uh, and had written him off. Um, and so therefore, he had to be good right out of the gate day one, and he had to be good every day because the scrutiny was on him. And he was good right out of the gate. Uh, the McLean's debate, I think, was a critical, pivotal moment in keeping the Liberal campaign alive, um, the perception of that he had performed well. And I think by the time he walked off the stage of your Monk debate, the readiness issue was no longer a serious issue uh, in the campaign. And that had the fact that in any group of people now, Justin Trudeau is an entirely plausible and credible candidate to be the Prime Minister, is the single most important accomplishment of this campaign for the Liberal Party and the reason that we're likely to win. Well, and, and the problem is it left the Conservatives with nothing, right? Sorry? Well, once he did that, it left the Conservatives with pretty bare cupboard. Kathleen, you get the last word. 
Um, well, first of all, some overview comments. In a 78-day campaign, um, you, ha you need to write about multiple different stories, right? And so you could look at this whole election in little vignettes, right? Remember, remember that whole Senate scandal? Remember that was going to be what dominated this campaign? Or, or the tsunami of financial information that came down in terms of technical recession, no recession, now we've got a surplus. Um, and then, of course, there's the refugee crisis, uh, obviously the identity politics. Um, and in that, uh, in the scope of the, these now 72, almost 78 days, um, the media have also required or wanted a different narrative, and they certainly have gotten that in Justin Trudeau. He was on the mat, and he has risen. It is a redemption story in many ways for him and certainly for the, the, the campaign. I think, um, turning to my own party, I would say what they did well and what they did right, but no one will talk about, um, and that's unfortunate, is they did get the platform right. And I, they got it right in this way. They got it right because they put Canadians first. Investments in healthcare, investments in pharmacare, investments in infrastructure, in childcare. These are the real things that Canadians want. If you talk to the average Canadian, my parents live in Ajax, I've got family all across the country who tell me when they say they do think that corporations should pay a little bit more. These are the things that Canadians want. I feel they got the platform right. The big problem with this campaign, they don't know how to sell it. They didn't sell it. They didn't sell the man. They didn't, uh, to use David's words, um, they took the foot off the neck of the Liberal Party, um, and they probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, they let him have a free pass for August, and uh, and he got up the mat. They didn't see him as um, a truly uh, an opponent, and that's a problem. And uh, But I do think going forward, if Justin is elected, I think that I would ask of Liberals, and considering I'm sitting beside a key strategist uh, of the Liberal campaign beside me, I'll ask you directly, David, to consider the progressive policies we actually need going forward, that they can't, that we have to actually commit at some point to not just beating Stephen Harper, but actually putting some of these things in place, the things like pharmacare, like reversing the health care cuts, you know, and, and not promising more cuts to things that Canadians really care about. So that's my little impassioned Pollyanna rose-colored glass speech for the end of the day. I, I, will, I will end it there. <laughs> well, let me put it back to you. And and let me say that, as a Liberal, I really hope that once, for once, the NDP can be counted on to support a small, short-term stimulative deficit. <laughs> okay, the campaign is alive and well, gentlemen and ladies. And I want to, just on behalf of all of us, thank a, a great panel. Uh, days away, you did a terrific job. I think we've all left with a new insight. So thank you, guys. turn it over to, uh, to you, Danny. Wonderful. Thank you, Rudyard. Uh, panelists, on behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto, I'd like to personally thank you for taking the time out to be with us today. Uh, with the advance polls, as the advance polls being an indicator of the interest of Canadians in this election, turning out record numbers, I, we feel particularly fortunate to have a special insiders panel under Rudyard's guidance to help us understand how things have evolved over the course of this election and some observations on how things might uh, turn out from here. Uh, Jamie, thank you very much for your comments, uh, and among other things, your, your careful explanation of how in modern politics today, this distinction between the policy and the politics, and how that can play out in, uh, in, in, uh, in an election. David, and, and thank you for uh, your insights on how the election unfolded into what may or may not be this two-way race in a change election 
that it was natural in some way that one of the two uh, challenging parties was going to gain this momentum and to give the people this choice between change and status quo. And Kathleen, among other things, thank you very much for your plea for, regardless of who wins and how these seats are allocated, that a plea for some uh, cooperation, nonpartisanship, so that government works for all of us, regardless of the outcome. And Rudyard, your skillful uh, handling of uh, this discussion, like many others, uh, that was able to pull out all of those great insights from our panelists for the benefit of us and all of our uh, welcome guests today. So thank you very much. Greatly appreciated. And we're all looking forward to seeing how things will turn out on October 19th. Now, just a few closing comments. Uh, I would like to draw your attention to the event survey on your table, this little card here. The Canadian Club is always looking for ways to improve your experience, so please take a moment to share your thoughts with us. They are very important to us. This concludes today's program. Please visit us again at the Canadian Club website for further information on our upcoming events at www.canadianclub.org. Thank you for joining us. This meeting is now adjourned.